everyone from amnesty to reported without borders to the Pope um, want Julian free. Just to start this conversation between Jared and Stella, uh, we were wondering, Stella, if you could tell us a bit about your journey uh, from South Africa, uh, having lived in multiple countries and then becoming a prominent lawyer and a human rights defender um, and then joining uh, Julian's legal team. So we're wondering if you could just tell us in your own words your journey throughout life. <laughs> um Okay, uh, well, I was born in South Africa, but we didn't actually live in South Africa. My parents were working for the, uh, well, my dad was working for the Swedish Development Agency. He's a town planner and an article, uh, architect, rather. Um, and my mom's a theater director. And so they went to Botswana in 1977 or 78, and I was born in 1983. And my parents lived in in Southern Africa for a total of 14 years. Um, but they're both artists. Uh, and my father's also a, a painter. And when they were in Botswana, they co, well, they weren't part of the founding group, but they joined uh, soon thereafter of a, a political artistic um, collective called Medu. And it was composed of mainly South African exiles, so people who were fleeing apartheid South Africa, intellectuals, writers, painters, etc. And this arts group had various units. My mom headed up the uh, the film units and the theater unit. My father um, was in the poster making unit, um, and they, you know, smuggled poster posters that you could have poster silk screen. Um, uh, equipment, silkscreen poster equipment that you could smuggle in a briefcase into South Africa and that kind of thing. So they were, it was a, a political activist group. And um, my parents left Botswana in 1985. Um, I don't remember Botswana, but this was a really key formative moment for, for us as a family and for me into my adulthood as well, because um the this group uh of artists was um came to an abrupt end because uh the south african um security forces uh, crossed the border into botswana and killed 12 people um they were targeting the members of the group because they were political activists that were active against the apartheid um and they killed 12 people, including one child. Um, and one of these pe people who were gunned down was a very close friend to the family. His name was Tami Miele, and he was an extraordinary artist. And so my parents um, have, well, our family was obviously uh, very scarred by this, by this um, episode. And my parents were already anti-apartheid activists, but this um, this is, you know, a, a really significant part in our family history. Uh, then we moved to Lesotho, and I was eight when we left Lesotho. We went to Sweden for seven years, and then to Spain, and then I came to the UK to start university. I studied law and politics. Um, I 
went to uh, East Timor for almost a year. Um, and that was in the beginning quite a peaceful period. Uh, then towards the end, it became, um, uh, it was uh, 2006. So there was, the country was on the brink of civil war. I was a very violent moment and I was there for about three months during this time. And then I came back to the UK to do my master's. Um, and I qualified as a lawyer and then joined, uh, the legal team for Julian in 2011. Um, and basically worked on, uh, both the the extradition case at the at the time, which was in relation to Sweden, I spoke Swedish, etc. But really, um, the background, what was going on throughout all this time, was the U.S. investigation, and um, so I was involved in the international team that was trying to uh, lift the lift the curtain on what was actually going on. In 2013, for example, um, Julian um, filed a police report and um, explained how his laptop had gone missing from Stockholm Airport when he left, um, his suitcase rather, which contained um, two encrypted laptops. But those encrypted laptops, for example, inc uh, included um, submissions uh, such as the, uh, the Durrani uh, massacre video in Afghanistan, which has been lost, unfortunately. Um, Partly due to to this um, this uh, episode, which uh, all indications are that there was a there was a an operation in the Swedish airport to to uh, steal his his property, and then uh, in the when Julian was in the embassy, um, I was there all the time and eventually um Julian and I embarked on a romantic um relationship and we have two children we got married in March last year well congratulations on the on the marriage and uh, the the budding family um of course um I, you know it's it's quite a it's quite a fascinating uh, history that you that you've lived um and certainly all over the other planets um, but I'd like to know a bit more about the sort of motivations of you going into law and politics and studying that formally. Like, I mean, you can infer from some of your life experiences, but uh, I'd like to hear uh, a bit more about like what you're internally thinking and like what you were hoping to get out of it and maybe what change or impact you were looking to make on the world. Uh, well, I think I I was a bit naive, perhaps, um, about how. Aren't we all? <laughs> yes, I, I I think you have to be a bit naive when you're young. Otherwise, um, you you might not get very far. Uh, well, I I was just fascinated by how um, the potential of um, the tools of the law to um, transform society. I think, um, you know, at a small scale, but I was more interested in kind of um, the fascinating cases um, that you 
that you encounter when you read the, the, the case law of the International Court of Justice. I mean, these are things that, um, you know, stories that you read in the newspaper and then you, then you have a, a forum where two countries um, are able to um, confront each other. Uh, and I find this very interesting, but then, so I, I suppose the intersection between law and politics has always fascinated me. And obviously having grown up in a family that was involved in the anti-apartheid struggle and so on, I have a, I have a uh, reference point of um, a movement um, of activism that resulted ultimately in the in the goal that that um, everyone was trying to achieve, which was a, a democratic South Africa. Um, but a, a lot was uh, a high price was paid for for that process, and a lot of things had to come together. Um, and I guess uh, I guess I had that idealism that there was some kind of progression over time towards uh, justice. Um, that that has come. I don't see things as as linearly anymore. Um, but that certainly was was part of my uh, my self perception of my role in the world was to try to um, be part of this bigger um, push towards justice in whatever form that might take. I wasn't really uh, um, a child of the internet like like Julian is, you know, like, you know, he, he was really um, ahead of his time. Uh, yeah. In that sense, I remember when I first encountered the internet, I thought, oh, I don't really understand it and it will probably pass. It's just a fad. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like my very like 97 or something like this. Uh, I found it quite scary. Um, right. So I'm, I'm, I became educated through uh, WikiLeaks, really. Um, that was my. So I was born in 1983, and I think it's a lot of people my age still are. They're just on the other side of the of the kind of coming of age of the internet. I think um, many of my contemporaries are are completely out, not out off the internet, but really don't uh, are a lot less immersed than than um, than people say five years younger, um, and. What I did immediately recognize when WikiLeaks started publishing um, the Iraq war logs and collateral murder and so on was it's how it was a, a total game changer. Um, and for me, I didn't really see it from a journalism perspective because that's not my area um, or, or wasn't my area at the time so much. I didn't really... Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't have a very sophisticated reading of the journalistic ecosystem, um, but I saw it as a as a political tool and as a legal tool to be absolutely game changing. Um, yes, and so that 
that's where my, I think my political education as a adult really started. Um, you know, I, I was, I, I, I suppose I'm, I was quite a politically engaged student. I mean, I wasn't really involved in student politics like that, but I followed things more or less, but I consider my political evolution to start basically from that point. Yeah, right. Fascinating. Um, I mean, there's a lot to a lot to unpack there. I, I think, like, um, uh, so from when you were you're born in the sort of five year window. I come in around 1986, so I'm I consider myself to be a, a child of an internet and like um, you know Mendax or Julian or, or your husband um, was absolutely influential to me. Um, you know, I became aware of him through the sort of uh, I think it was Milnet. Um, you know, and in the mid '90s, and um, yeah, from from there, I got uh, involved. In, well, not involved, but became aware of you know, like international subversive magazine. Um, and got into like, I was like right on the edge of like the tail end of like freaking, and um, <laughs> managed to get like a hold of a bunch of telecom uh, codes. Went pit diving and uh, jumped into PABX systems. So. Um, and from there, I got into the cypherpunk mailing list. So, like, from like eight years old, like Julian has been this inspiration and like influence in my life. So, yeah, it's a huge honor. Um, but you know, you it sounds like you know we, we've talked a little bit about sort of this sort of I, idealism of youth, and um, now you see things in a bit more of a nonlinear fashion. Um, I was kind of curious, like how your thoughts have changed around, say, uh, like law and politics, or like what is more nonlinear about it, or like what is the sort of reality for you today? I mean, and and to follow on with that, I think you've said uh, in the past that um, you know extraditions are like ninety nine percent politics and like one percent law. So, and I wonder if like how you compare and contrast that with say like Sweden versus the uh, the, the the current objective, I guess, yeah. Well, I've I've known lawyers who have basically left human rights law over this case and gone into like white collar crime because this case, um, it's an extremely political case. I mean, it's it's you you couldn't get more political than this, and it really tests the um, the justice system. And when you look at Julian's the the prosecution against Julian is is a complete, um, it's like some exaggerated, uh, how to put it, you know, I don't want to, it's just completely incredible. You would, if you put this, um, if you attempt this legal argument in a in a school paper or a university paper, um, you would fail. Uh, I'm talking about the U.S. prosecution against Julian. Um, so, the fact that none of the safeguards that are supposed to have protected him from this kind of arbitrary, vindictive, political. Um, prosecution have failed is a cat indicates a ca- catastrophic failure of the of the legal system um 
and so so you can be become very very cynical uh about that but i see it as um a, a general breakdown of the international um norm system that emerged from the second world war so if you look at wikileaks wikileaks is actually a, a very um people don't like this term but conservative um project it basically takes the universal declaration of human rights and puts uh, a practical it's a project to make the universal declaration of human rights um more easily enforceable and the only way to do that is by um freeing information making democratizing information making um uh the records of history um available and um readily deployable in in uh international fora for example in the courts or in the in journalism or in academia etc um it's solving the information asymmetry which uh allows um you know impunity um it allows uh, a lack of accountability and all these things so if you level the information if you make that information available to the people who need to um evidence something in their in in a court case or um inform the uh course of history and so on um then you start leveling the playing field so i think that's what is so threatening to um the those who you know aim towards uh less information and what we've seen over time is increasingly um not just less information available to the public but an increase in the means through which those in power can restrict manipulate um and and make that information asymmetry um even greater at the point where wikileaks published the iraq war logs the afghan war diaries state department cables guantanamo bay um detainee uh assessment briefs and collateral murder in 2010 this was kind of the internet at its highest potential it was a moment a kind of golden moment of the internet and of um you know transparency was was a good word it wasn't a dirty word you don't use that transparency anymore i see that more and more with privacy you don't you don't see privacy talked about very much anymore um and so since 2010 and this tracks Julian's persecution um there was yeah one or two years or maybe you could drag it out until Edward Snowden and then since then there's been this massive um counter attack on every front and it's not just the will that the will is there because there's always probably been the will or um 
to to push back, but the means have become more sophisticated and more um, able to shut down um, that that uh, movement towards more openness. Um, and I think there's also been a the public feels less entitled to information too. Um, so WikiLeaks came out of a a culture in which um, the government should be open. Um, you know, the, the decisions have to be accountable to to the citizenship. Um, that that those who govern should always be governing with the assumption that that um, what they're doing will will be um, able to be monitored um, and and held up to democratic scrutiny in some form. Whereas now I think the shift is, the default is, um, is that the, the state has secrecy as its default. And then um, it can uh, disclose information more or less um, at its, uh, as it as it wishes, and that's a major shift. Um, and so I think for I think for for people who are young now, I don't know if they're aware that that's a shift, because that's that's kind of become the default. It's very concerning. Um, so that's why when you were talking about the, the, that's what I mean that it's not linear. I, I've come to understand that um, that I experienced this um, internet at its strongest, or I guess, well, you or or Julian would have really experienced it, but before it became uh, a, a, a massive, um, ubiquitous um, uh, uh, thing. Uh, a free internet. Uh, I I think I experienced more or less a free internet, and for many people who are younger than me, they've never experienced that, or they don't they don't they don't they don't understand what the shift has been. I think that's. I mean, I think that's a correct assessment, uh, as bleak as it is, um, and it's very much. Um, a fulfilled prophecy of like a lot of what the cypherpunks talked about, you know, in the sort of uh, mid to late nineties. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Like, uh, you know, one of the, the things that comes to mind is like Ron Paul's quote, like truth is treason and like the empire of lies. Um, and like my understanding of like, say some of Julian's ideas is that he was, um, you know, concerned with like, society as general and like how we could make better decisions collectively and like how we can have just governments. Um, and in particularly, he was concerned with like the say like historical or intellectual record, um, and how it could be manipulated, say to, to rewrite history. Um, and then, um, became concerned or uh, it sounded like he became concerned through some of his essays, such as like conspiracy as governance where, um, uh, he was concerned with, say, like certain um, actors that would set up like these uh, networks of secrecy and like their 
you know, he was viewing him as a social graph and um, was trying to figure, like, basically, you know, in the same way that a hacker's mindset would, like, understand the system and then navigate it um, or, or, or be able to modify it in some way, um, you know, to me that he, he came across a method in which um, he could partition this sort of social graph of, like, um, uh, conspirers or, or people who were looking to, to sort of modify um, um, modify the history and like uh, and, and effectively implement unjust governance and you know some of the tools of that are, are certainly like mass surveillance and consequently uh, censorship uh, after it um, and that's and you know that's kind of what the, you know WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks was at least in my understanding was like you know one of these uh, political tools as you put it that allowed you to kind of using truth uh, bring us closer to you know, just governance um, and allow us to collectively make better decisions, you know, having a closer understanding of what reality was and, um, you know, exposing, I, I guess, criminality in, in some ways, right? But not necessarily. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I've certainly witnessed the the internet transform in, into something that looks more like a feudal system these days, right? With like, and consolidated sort of big tech platforms and a lot of the youth, you know, like if they're on TikTok or something like that, are very unaware of like, you know, um, the commercialization of mass surveillance uh, and, um, you know, how they're manipulated uh, psychologically through algorithms and, and these sort of things. So it, it, on this, Jared, I just wanted us to uh, perhaps for you to tell us a bit more about your journey from a successful entrepreneur, an internet entrepreneur, into a civil libertarian, into somebody who's dedicating his resources, his time, um, into a project uh, which is very much grounded in privacy and free expression. Um, and in doing so, I know you described your sort of um, early influences um finding out about julian um and reading the book by peter ludlow for example um as a teenager i wanted just for you to sort of tell us a bit more as well um about sort of that journey that's taken you um in life as well um you know i became aware of like the cyberpunk movement around the age of eight and then by um you know, those were certainly formative years and uh, I was steeped in that sort of culture. Um, certainly by the time I was 10, um, you know, started coding around a similar similar age as well, uh, making beige boxes and these sort of things. Um, and, you know, I didn't have anything of value to contribute at that age apart from, you know, just kind of playing with these ideas and, you know, navigating these systems in ways that I could. Um, but uh, I was certainly consuming all the information, right? Like uh, I became completely engrossed in, in like, you know, what the cypherpunk message was and understanding cryptography and like how this could be used to enforce human rights. Or, you know, I, I certainly care about civil liberties um, and, um, you know, things like freedom of speech and the right to associate and economic freedom, self-determination, these sort of things. Um, and in the sort of... Um, at the cyberpunk movement, you know, and certainly the sort of uh, around the 2000s, um, we all saw, you know, uh, that um, cyberspace could be like an independent realm or even like a sovereign entity that could like 
uh, and that it could ra- it, w- it would radically transform the nature of states at a fundamental level. Um, and uh, yeah, with that, like, um, yeah, I guess like the main inspiration for, for me from that was sort of Barlow's Declaration of uh, Independence in Cyberspace. But, um, uh, you know, they came out with a book, Crypto Anarchy, Cyberstates and Power Utopias, which is a collection of essays edited by uh, Peter Ludlow um, that is just on this topic. And um, uh, yeah, so, so then I got involved in, ca- I was aware of Hashcash, and then I kind of got uh, more seriously involved in Bitcoin around 2010, 2011. Um, and once I realized that, say, Bitcoin could secure value um, in a hostile environment, um, I, I like I had absolute conviction, and I guess I dedicated the, the rest of my life to try and work out these technologies. And I'll, I'll try and cut it a little short, but um, got into the Ethereum ecosystem because it had, in the early days, a strong sort of um, philosophy of, of that Bitcoin had in, t- uh, in terms of its politics. Um, but it also generalized like these sort of application layers, so you could do smart contracts or um, you know, we, we had these envisions of like code as law, which a lot of people don't hold as strongly anymore. But um, there is this capacity to create institutions that were corruption resistant um, and censorship resistant and like uh, bring, you could then use this technology to create, um, you know, what was called a cyber state or a virtual state, now called a network state, um, like a new order, like a cyberpunk state. Um, where like instead of trying to fundamentally change the system instead you enter into competitive governance and you create a parallel system um in which people can you know opt into the opt into these competing governing services um and anywhere on the planet which is just incredible like if you wanted to deploy say like an arbitration service that had like um common law you could export common law to every country on the planet um or any stable institution. So, yeah, and that's that's kind of what, that's kind of my my approach and where I want to take it. Um, and the technology now has made this possible to kind of introduce um, like advances in packet routing and mixing on the network level allows us to uh, remove personhood um, from the actors who are participating in the network. And we can also um, do this in terms of uh, the transaction content. We can make people blind to to both the participants, but also the, the content that's flowing through the service network. Um, and this is really important because it gives you this property of like political neutrality. Um, and polit- political neutrality is, is basically a prerequisite for, you know, civil liberties such as freedom of speech. Um, but the byproduct of that is also um, if you are able to prevent um, political bias from entering into the system, then you also have an aspect or a byproduct of like, um, sovereignty or autonomy of the system, and therefore you can terrorize cyberspace. Um, at least that's the the naive idealist idea, you know, of youth. <laughs> that's not naive at all. Um, uh, very interesting, very fascinating. Um, on that, so uh, Stella, I've heard how uh, you've spoken about uh, how Julian has introduced you to crypto. And uh, we all know that Julian is a is a crypto native. Um, do you mind just telling us um, a little bit about how how you introduced the conversations you had with Julian? Um, what's Julian's um, 
thinking and idea and views about crypto um, and obviously how sort of WikiLeaks started accepting uh, crypto as donations. Well, I, um, I won't even try to recreate Julian's views on crypto because uh, I don't want to embarrass myself. Uh, but the way he uh, introduced me, as I say, uh, you know, complete someone from the past century <laughs> struggling with technology at the time. I think I've, I've, I've evolved since then. But um, when I first heard about crypto and mainly Bitcoin um, was in 2011. And in fact, Julian was in Norfolk at the time. He was under house arrest. And the, um, I think he was CTO or CEO, anyway, Eric Schmidt of Google asked to meet to, with Julian. And Julian accepted the meeting and he, uh, and so Eric Schmidt came with um, Jared Cohen, who, uh, I don't know if he had been at the State Department, but was then Google um, and uh, another person, the three of them came to Norfolk and I was at the lunch um, with, with this delegation from Google and Google was writing a book at the time and they wanted to interview Julian um, to understand his ideas about the internet. Um, and so there was a very interesting conversation. And in fact, this conversation is recorded uh, uh, with, with Eric Schmidt's uh, permission uh, because the agreement was that they would share the recording and then they could have a, a more relaxed, fluid conversation um, about technology and the internet and so on. And I mean, I was lost on many, for much of the conversation I was lost. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting conversation because Julian introduces Eric Schmidt to Bitcoin at this conversation. And at this point, Eric Schmidt has not heard of Bitcoin. Um, so I guess that's probably the first time I heard about Bitcoin. Um, and then uh, I had, this was more or less when, when Occupy Wall Street was happening as well. And um, I, I just recall this, conversation we had I had with Julian where he was explaining you know um, how cryptography could have a real world impact in you know it was just so weird to me to 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 understand how mathematics basically could could have a, a real world impact um and and that the universe conspires to to make cryptography work um and that it can subvert you know or it, it it's more powerful than the than the nuclear bomb um so all of these things were completely new concepts to me and uh and he said well um well bitcoin is a real occupy wall street and this kind of made it relatable for me. Okay, so this is something that uh, that has the power to subvert uh, the banking system in some fundamental way um, that 
that changes the rules of the game, right? Um, and over time, I became more educated about um, both about the the problems of uh, of the internet and and the architecture of the internet and how our you know I I uh, learned how how the internet wasn't just some big public square um, but it was actually uh, more like a terminal in which uh, there are different um, I don't know train companies that are privatized and they take you from one place to the other but you don't really know the route or or what they're doing to you in on the train um, and and what you're you know sacrificing to get to where you're trying to go um, so for julian he he was and and wikileaks um it was really and is really about preserving reality right preserving reality as um as the tools to manipulate and distort reality become more and more powerful. One of the, I think for the for the people who are trying to, you know, um, expose surveillance and preserve privacy and and fight censorship and all these things now, studying what happened to WikiLeaks um, now over a decade ago, how the authorities reacted, is really um, indicative. And it's really useful because it was kind of the first uh, the first time that certain um, course of measures were used. So, for example, with the banking blockade, uh, banking blockade started within a couple of days of WikiLeaks publishing the the U.S. State Department cables. So the cables were published on uh, the 29th of November or 28th, depending on which country you were in. And by the 2nd of December, um, Bank of America, Visa, MasterCard, etc., had shut down donations to WikiLeaks. Um, and this was a uh, effectively censorship uh, through demonetization, or so they hoped. Uh, and it had never been done before. I mean, there was there was a a lot of um, well, it took everyone by surprise that they, that this had happened, and it wasn't a legal measure; it was an extra legal measure. Um, from what we hear, it was a couple of senators who called up their pals in these um, in these corporations, and then they shut it down, you know, in a completely um, unaccountable way. Uh, there was a couple of court cases in. Iceland, which WikiLeaks eventually won, um, that uh, against the card processor in Iceland, you know, and and the Supreme Court of Iceland um, found that this this um, just arbitrarily shutting down um, WikiLeaks from its donation stream was illegal, but it took years and years, and it was just Iceland, right? Um, at the time, there was uh, some pronouncement by the European Parliament as well. Um, but now, of course, we've seen a normalization of this practice. Um, 
where social media companies have just shut down content um, um, providers of content from from their supporters and their audience and their livelihoods. And um, yeah, it took 10 years, but this is now very, very normal. Um, and it's part of a bigger uh, censorship um, push. WikiLeaks survived because it adopted Bitcoin, basically, um, at that point where, well, it took a little while um, and WikiLeaks had some reserves at that point because um, people had generously donated up until that point. Um, and the donations were an average of $25. I mean, it wasn't huge donations. These were average people just sending small amounts. Um, but that allowed WikiLeaks to continue for a few years and then eventually uh, adopt um, Bitcoin or uh, receive Bitcoin donations, which also allowed things to, to um, continue. Uh, so WikiLeaks is, I think, the, the first Bitcoin-powered um, project. Yeah, I've, I've certainly heard, uh, you know, Julian say Bitcoin is like the real Occupy movement. Um, but what I also find fascinating is like the lead up, you know, uh, from Arab Springs. And um, I think WikiLeaks uh, was shown to be an effective tool against the sort of authoritarian regimes uh, in, in that sort of area. And like, I was involved in that. Um, I don't know what that experience was like for, from your side or if you're in, uh, involved or aware of it, but I'd love to hear a bit more about it. Well, I was, I was uh, following it. Um, and so this was, this was a really interesting, I guess the, the, the comparison maybe is with the, with the French Revolution maybe. Um, you know, you had the revolutions in Tunisia and then Egypt and the WikiLeaks publications about Tunisia and Egypt were, were really critical in um, having these revolutions um, in kind of fueling the revolutions really because they provided the U.S. State Department's internal conver conversations and communications about uh, these corrupt regimes. Um, and yeah, Amnesty International sort of credits WikiLeaks, I think, for the, you know, being a major influence on at least Tunisia or maybe also Egypt. You also had like the... the uh, the days of rage, right? There was the U.S. Day, days of rage that eventually um, evolved into Occupy World, Wall Street, but the original day of, days of rage were in Yemen. Um, and I think the the Tahrir Square in Egypt in, influenced or inspired the Spanish um, 15th, uh, 15M uh, movement, the Indignados, who then occupied the central square in Madrid. And, you know, this was really interesting to see how, how, um, of course the, the, the context for all of this was, was the 2008 banking crisis, right? And then, um, years of austerity and well, it came quite, quite quickly after actually, now that I think of it. Um, but that was the climate and, um, and so, 
um, I think the the WikiLeaks publications captured that moment of um, of democratic um, mobilization, uh, and it's very interesting that you know that that it seemed like it was it seemed like it was there to stay at the at the time um that something so, something fundamental was <laughs> um was happening um and i guess it did i mean occupy people got educated with Occupy and went on to do um, interesting things. Um, but I think there's been a, yeah, it was definitely a moment of kind of optimism and, and um, democratic celebration, I'd say. Uh, but then, you know, I think what what's happened with the with the crypto world has been very interesting and that the more kind of um sewn up the commercial internet becomes uh the more there is a need for alternative systems and networks and um modes of organizing and there's also a greater demand for it. So you think about how bad, for example, censorship is now. It's become ubiquitous, normalized. I mean, even Glenn Greenwald was tweeting about this. Jordan Peterson did an interview with Robert Ken Kennedy Jr. And it's been censored from YouTube. And you think, how is this, how is this possible? You know, these, these are, you know, first of all, there's you can make a very clear argument that this is election interference uh by youtube um and these aren't marginal figures in the sense that they they have i wouldn't say they're mainstream but mainstream has almost become a you know the the the, the numbers in mainstream have become smaller and smaller um, so these people have a big following, um, and, and they've been censored on, on YouTube, massive following. So, okay. What I'm getting to is that the demand for these alternative systems is greater because it's affecting not just normal people, but, um, people who have, um, some form of power, not the kind of power that that doesn't get you censored, um, but who have the ability to um, galvanize um, lots of people into um, seeing the need for for something else, and I think that that's kind of a I think it's a hopeful development. I mean, it's not a good context that that you know it's become so generalized that 
but it's it's basically the censorship and the surveillance and so on is so generalized that um that it's kind of caving in on itself or it's just gonna it's basically a a fiefdom where you know if we couple our 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 rights as citizens to our presence on the internet then then you know we're we're not citizens really we're just kind of um i don't know what we are uh but but the the uh, it's important that we don't couple our 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 civil rights and liberties to um to how they're expressed on these on these um social media websites or whatever um we we need to also i think uh use what's there you know i mean if you look at article 19 of the universal declaration of human rights um every person has the right to receive and impart and seek information um regardless of means um re- regardless of the of the medium uh that's that's pretty solid you know if we if we uh stick to this document from 1948 um which everyone bought into and everyone says yes this is right this is binding and so on we don't need to reinvent the wheel we just have to recognize how far we've departed um from the from the agreed standard um yeah yeah i mean i think julian is as kind of um viewed censorship as an opportunity uh because it is a weakness in the system right and it tells you it's it becomes a signal telling you you know what is valuable um and like the more that we start to see both you know censorship on big tech platforms and social media as well as economic censorship which a lot of people in crypto face today like just by you know the banks saying that there's some kind of a fiat transaction associated with crypto then like um many of us have experienced like th- these account closures um but it just to me it it it's you know it sound it gets worse before it gets better i guess and um the it just shows the inherent fragility in the system if it has to do that then it's not a strong system that's uh, that they're trying to maintain i think we're moving into it's very we're in a very dangerous moment because i think we're kind of moving into a post not just post national but like kind of post state system right you have the uh the banks that are basically being forced into a position of surveilling the clients um whereas previously they were you know they had some kind of secrecy of obligations towards the clients um now they're a, they're a proxy for for control and surveillance um by the state um and then when you look at Julian's prosecution i mean the us is using um extraterritorial um interpretations of of their domestic legislation in order to keep him imprisoned i mean they're applying the the us espionage act um to an australian in the uk and and then not only that they say because he's not american he doesn't enjoy constitutional rights and it's completely insane and so the us has been using um 
legal means to to further their um, foreign policy objectives. Uh, you saw it with the the way they tried to extradite and harass the uh, the CFO. I think she was CFO of of Huawei, um, and embroiled her for years in in an extradition battle in in Canada. Um, and you know, there's there's also the case of this Venezuelan uh, uh, diplomat Alex Saab, um, who was was. Uh, had um, was on a diplomatic mission to uh, try to find um, partners to uh, to get Venezuela to uh, be able to to trade with with other countries that they didn't have trading relationships with. Like it's, uh, um, you know, I think it's it's a new development where. The U.S. government is using and abusing um, its criminal justice system or its laws to to get allies and and compliant um, governments to let them further those objectives, um, and that's a very that's a very bad development because that's kind of the UK giving giving up its sovereignty if it allows the US to apply its its laws extraterritorially. You also see this development in the um, in in the agreements with NATO countries. So I think I was reading with about Nor- Norway that um, I think has some um, NATO military um, base up north. And they've agreed to giving up jurisdiction in relation to certain matters um, that occur within that territory. And of course, the United States has always had these kind of status of forces agreements where there are military bases. You saw it in this case with Ansikoulos, the CIA um, officer who was in based in the UK. She was married to, an, I think, an NSA officer who was based here. And she ran over a uh, a teenage British boy um, on the road. He was on the motorbike. She was on the wrong side of the road, ran him over, and then basically got protected by the U.S. government, was assisted to get back to the U.S. Um, in the end, it was a high-profile case, so she got basically, uh, she had to do a remote, um, is a, a departure from what was before. Do you have any ideas on like what the underlying cause or the the reason for the shift in the behavior? Well, I think in part part it's uh, that the Trump administration was more aggressive than before. Um, But, you know, I mean, I think there's a long history here. Um, The war on so-called war on terror allowed um, allowed for, well it didn't allow but the the US created um, a bunch of exceptions to to the rules uh, from from uh, uh, invading Iraq without um, a security council agreement um, just with its allies um, to the establishment of black sites and and 
Guantanamo Bay is effectively like the most famous uh, black site uh, where constitutional protections don't don't apply. And, um, you know, and you can in the black sites and Guantanamo Bay, um, they institutionalized torture um, and they found a legal justification for it. And well, if you if you start, if you do that, then it's not. Um, you know, even though they, they rolled back those policies under the Bush, uh, from the Bush administration under Obama, um, the Trump administration has used, uh, basically took, took things further and um, imposed sanctions on international criminal court prosecutors that were inve investigating U.S. involvement in um, uh, international crimes in Afghanistan and so on. So um, there was kind of a more uh, brazen attitude towards using um, its uh, geopolitical uh, might. But I think maybe the, the deeper consideration is, is that the United States is no longer the single superpower, right? And, and so it feels the need perhaps to be more aggressive um, in order to assert itself. Um, and in doing so, it's dismantling um, well, long-established um, uh, norms about how the international system works. So um, that's that's a great uh, threat, you know? It's a great threat because, for example, the UN system, this is my reference point as, you know, coming out of the, the type of um, formation I had, um, that the UN system was was uh, a big deal. I, I know this isn't shared by by um, many Americans, and I know it's not viewed this way generally necessarily, except for you know people who are really immersed in in that kind of world um, and NGOs and this kind of thing. Um, but even the UN system is is fast losing its um, influence, and that's very concerning because you don't have you don't have another effective forum, um, really, like, and and that shouldn't be lost. Yeah, sorry, I just um uh, wanted to sort of explore an avenue uh, which is um, I suppose that's a question for both of you for both jared as well as for stella um but what do you both think julian's case means for all of us the impact of it on our rights on our liberties um the impact of um of the case on journalism on activism um across the board i'd be very interested to hear both of your perspectives on this well, Julian's case is a departure from what came before. Um, it's a departure from um, a consensus around um, whether around
being able to expose injustice, basically. Um, before Julian was uh, arrested, if you think back to 2010, you had people, you, you would find this everywhere. Um, no one's going to try to put Assange on trial. It's impossible. You know, it's, it's never going to happen. He is um, paranoid. And if he were arrested, there would be a revolution. No one would, would tolerate it and all these things. Um, what's happened is that over time, just our, our, um, civil liberties have just deteriorated across the board. Um, and so what was probably politically difficult for the United States to do in 2010 at that point became possible through a series of um, active, you know, it didn't just happen. Uh, Julian was arrested as a result of a massive campaign on his reputation, legal, you know, financial, all these things at the same time um, until it reached a point where they could pressure, the US government could pressure Ecuador, which has changed its government into one that was seeking uh, an alliance with the United States and so on until a point where it became politically possible. But when it became politically possible, it also normalized putting journalists in prison for publishing the truth. And this is right after his arrest. I remember some, some commentary in the newspapers that was quite interesting. It said, oh, actually, Assange was right all this time. He, he, he was right, you know? Um, and I think this was a, this was a realization where, um, then people actually became scared and that's the new reality. They're scared. It's not that Julian's case poses a risk to journalism. Julian's case is, um, a current active signaling of intimidation to journalists right now. And it is shutting down um, a free and open society because it is a reference point. And I encounter it all the time, you know, even just anecdotally, I was listening to a podcast the other day, it's called The Wind, Wind of Change, and it's about CIA um, um, cultural psychological operations during the Cold War and after. And I happened to be on the phone with Julian and I was telling him how interesting this podcast was and I was kind of playing it to him as I was listening. And then, so in this podcast, you have an investigative journalist trying to speak, trying to convince a source who is on the other side of the phone um, to, to talk about what they know. And then the source says, no, no, I can't do that. They'll destroy my life. I don't want to be Julian Assange. That's what's happening. You know, it's, and, and it's happening for sure. You have the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Guardian and so on publishing op-eds um, 
not op-eds, um, editorials. So the editorial board is, is publishing, um, you know, the position of the paper, which is that the case has to be dropped because the chilling effect it, it is having on, on journalism, on investigative journalism. You see, they, they receive scoops, they receive leaks, and then they go to their legal departments and they said, what happens if we publish this? And their legal departments say, don't publish it. It's too big. Look at Julian Assange. They're going to try to put you in jail or they're going to try to put the paper through a lot of very expensive litigation. Just don't publish it. It's too much trouble. And I was just speaking to Chris Hedges last week. He was in London and he, of course, you know, he's had a incredible career as an investigative journalist. He used to be in the New York Times um, working in their investigations department, and he still has friends there. And his friends at the New York Times tell him there are no investigations anymore. They've just stopped. Of course, they still publish because they get kind of authorized leaks that that uh, the authorities want out there because obviously um, classified information is in the paper all the time. But if you publish something that um, is not an authorized leak, uh, then you're in real trouble. And that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. So that's that's the that's not the risk in the future. That's what's happening right now. So this is to me, I you know, I I I um part of my frustration is that Julian's case is always treated like he's falling between the trap the cracks, for example, um, he's an Australian in Britain, so he's he's not he's not he's not British, so it's not our problem. Or we're not the reason why the, the the UK says we're not the reason why Julian has been in prison for four years and counting with no conviction. It's the US. The US doesn't agree to giving him bail, and so that's why he's in prison. Then the US says, we're not imprisoning him. He's in the UK. He's in a UK prison. You know? And and there's this false rhetoric about how it's kind of a wait and see what happens with Julian's case because if he goes to the US then it's a risk to journalism and so on. No, that's right now. It's that 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 risk that that um that some people warn about potentially happening if he is extradited, that is right here, right now happening. And it has been for the past, well, for the past 13 years, arguably, uh, because he's been persecuted and attacked and, you know, on in very sophisticated ways for well over a decade. And it was the failure of the press um, to critically um, analyze and show what was actually going on um, that enabled his continued persecution and eventually imprisonment. And I'm, I hope that's rever- that's changing now and that, well, over the, the, the just the passage of time, um, the fact that he's in prison for doing nothing but publishing and exposing the crimes of the country that's that's trying to extradite him. Um, I hope that like 
people by now can see through um, the propaganda. Uh, but it's, you know, it, it's, it doesn't, it, it, it's very, it's very problematic um, that he's, that he hasn't been, that he hasn't been freed. Um, I mean, I, I say this, it sounds like I'm talking about from the perspective of uh, that, that a whole lot of, a whole lot of safeguards that are supposed to have made this completely impossible, um, including public scrutiny and media scrutiny, have just totally collapsed. And that's what explains Julian's um, continued imprisonment. Jared, um, I was wondering if you um, wanted to share your views on uh, the impact of the case against Julian, um, on specifically on technology, on innovation. Um, you know, you're a pioneer, uh, you're an innovator. Um, so I wanted to sort of hear your, your perspective on it as well and how you see it. Uh, it's just echoing more or less what uh, Stella has laid out, right? Like, um, there has been this erosion of civil liberties, like the undermining of like due process um, and, you know, uh, these safeguards that have been in place um, has people into a position of not really understanding what system of law they're actually under, right? And, you know, there is no sort of like, um, and, and that becomes very difficult when it comes to, say, like planning for the future at an individual level. Like, you, if you are, you know, living under the threat of like, you know, potential persecution, whether you say a mean tweet, you know, or, you know, um, expose, uh, you know, uh, criminality of, of, of states, right? Like it's now kind of all in an equal level playing field as far as you as an individual is concerned. Um, and for me, like it's mostly concerning because I view civil liberties, um, as part of a Western tradition that, or a, a great chain of thought that has been going on, um, that you could even trace back to say like ancient Greece. Um, and now we're radically departing that into, into a completely different world. Um, but it's, it's not really a surprise to me either, right? Like, I mean, the psychopunks in particular saw this, um, they knew it was coming. Um, and it's just happening. It's just becoming a, re a reality. Um, and I, I, to, to your point, Stella, I, I think that people are starting to see through that propaganda, but at the same time, that propaganda works um, for, for a vast majority of people. Um, and they start defending the system because they just repeat, you know, like these sort of messages. Um, and uh, the thing that kind of concerns me is, is like, uh, um, I think people do live in fear, but like, they're also kind of adapted to it in many ways. Like it, it, it's like almost like a level of complacency and just going, okay, well, you know, if I keep my head down and uh, if I don't say anything, then like, it's fine. And therefore it starts shaping like, you know, your capacity to, to think and like this digital panopticon is, is really far down the line in terms of its implementation. Um, and 
uh, I think, you know, we are living on borrowed time and I, I do think that it's, there is hope and like we can, you know, the technologies that we work on, um, I think provide strong, um, I wouldn't say guarantees per se, but like a, a strong resistance um, to to the rollout of, the, of this. Like, I mean, what's great about say like cryptography is it creates this um, computational barrier that goes so high that like, even like the most disturbing uh, technological process can't really go through that that boundary. Um, and once you have that, then you can create this sort of spaces for for living like a real like a human, you know, and and how we kind of view the world, I guess, um, prior to the internet's mass rollout. I was wondering, Stella, if you uh, wanted to give us a bit of an update about. Uh, Julian's um, legal situation at this stage? Well, Julian's legal situation is extremely precarious. It has... um, The latest development is uh, that the... A a high court judge um, denied permission to appeal. That means that um, if, if that decision is maintained, then... Julian won't even be able to bring his arguments about why he shouldn't be extradited to the high court, uh, which is the second level court. It's not even the Supreme Court. Um, We're trying to get that decision overturned by a separate panel of two judges. Um, if, If that attempt fails, then that is the end of the road here in the UK. There will be nothing else we can do. Obviously, Julian will try to apply to the European Court of Human Rights. He will try to get a stay on extradition. Um, But as far as the UK is concerned, once domestic remedies have been exhausted, it will move to extradite him. And only a order from the European Court of Human Rights will be able to stop that process. I I still hope have some um, hope that the that the UK courts will at least allow Julian to have his arguments heard, um, but I don't take that for granted at all because I have seen. Uh, I've come to expect the unexpected in Julian's case. We have now extraordinary um, new evidence that has come out since the original decision uh, that was not part of the extradition case and that we want a court to be able to consider. For example, reports that Mike Pompeo discussed in the White House at the highest levels Julian's assassination, that Mike Pompeo, when he was CIA director, had ordered um, the CIA to elaborate to elaborate um, sketches and options about how to kidnap and even assassinate Julian while he was in the embassy. Uh, you know, these these are reports by uh, three national security journalists who are in the um you know, experienced with with long established careers who have no relationship or um, I'd say even sympathy towards uh, Julian or WikiLeaks. They're just doing their jobs. 
and they interviewed over 30 sources at the CIA National Security Council um, who were serving under the Trump administration who corroborated and informed uh, these journalists about this fact. And Mike Pompeo has um, confirmed it by saying that the sources of the story should be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Obviously, um, that means that uh, that the information was classified or considered national defense information, therefore they should be prosecuted. Um, he wasn't saying that they should be prosecuted for for um, anything else, for, for not telling the truth, but rather for disclosing information um, that was true. So how a British court can refuse to even consider um, these reports is uh, it, it, it's quite extraordinary, right? Uh, because it goes to, um, it becomes a, a test of the independence and um, fairness of the British justice system if that report is put before it and they still extradite. Um, I just, uh, you know, part of this part of this report was was introduced at a uh, at an earlier stage in the uh, during the U.S. appeal because the U.S. was allowed to appeal, um, and it wasn't full, presented in full because it had just come out at that point. Um, but it was basically just brushed aside by 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 the judges at that point, um, and Julian in this appeal wants to introduce that, that investigation in full and has been denied along with all the other arguments, which are extremely strong, you know, uh, for example, uh, that, that his, um, that his legal meetings were being recorded and transported to the United States, um, where his defense strategy was discussed and, and his legal privilege was violated. All these arguments on their own should, uh, you know, should stop this extradition in its tracks, but that hasn't happened. That's why I say that I'm not confident that the, that the, uh, that, that we will be successful in the, the, in the British courts. And that means that Julian, Julian's extradition could be Imminent. I mean, after after the final decision, um, the next stage could be announced any time. We don't have a date for the for the hearing before these two separate judges, um, but it could be, you know, it could be very soon. And once that happens, we don't know how quickly the UK government will move to extradite him. There are reports in the Daily Mail that they're already making preparations, so it's extremely precarious and. Um, and you know this this is a is a it's a very serious departure from um, from what's come before. It affects, for example, the UK um, press environment for sure. Um, the decisions that the the decisions that the courts have taken in this case um, involve. You know, 
the, the most serious um, exposures of, of state criminality that there has been in the history of journalism. And, and Julian is being punished for it. Darren, do you have any um, points to add or any questions to ask Stella? I, I guess like just one to kind of wrap up. Um, a lot of the spotlight has been put on Julian uh, specifically, right? Uh, but if he, if he was here, I imagine that he wouldn't want to be the focus. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, what do you think he would want to put the spotlight on? Well, Julian is a lifelong activist for free speech. And I think that the, the, um, the course that um, the world has taken since his imprisonment um, has been pretty extreme. Um, and I'm sure he would be very much involved in, in, the, in the censorship um, debate and, you know, lending his expertise to try to fight this um, fundamental attack on everyone's ability to not just speak their mind, but also um, not have their message interfered with. So um, that, that would be my, my guess, that Julian would be very much involved in the censorship debate if he were free and and you know in a in a healthy and and um, safe environment um is it also okay to ask about how is he doing at the moment how is he holding up well he's uh he's struggling um as anyone would be struggling in his position he's been in a in a small cell for over four years and three months now and he's having to fight for his life you know this this extradition to the united states um is a is a fight for his survive for his survival uh, the U.S. wants to put him on trial, um, you know, in a in a in a context in which he cannot mount a defense, um, where he faces 175 years um, for his publishing work, and he's doing it from this high security prison where he has no access to the internet, um, where the computer he has been given is issued by the Ministry of Justice. And so they've removed the um, text editing software and glued glued the keys down and filled in the, the, the USB slots with epoxy and so on um, in order to even receive his, uh, the, the latest US indictment, which was in 2021, the, the second superseding, superseding indictment, was published on the internet, but Julian didn't receive it for another 10 days um, because it has to be sent as a physical copy um, to the prison and then processed and so on. So the entire world could read his indictment, but he couldn't. So imagine mounting a defense um, involving, you know, allegations concerning, you know, a decade ago uh, where you don't have 
access to your own ability to research or or whatever and having to do this in these extremely harsh circumstances um the the prison conditions are are very difficult he's mostly in his cell for about 22 hours a day um he has to eat on his own in the cell because that's the standard in Belmarsh um his interactions with the outside world are are minimal um he can receive visits from family and some friends his phone calls everything is monitored the phone calls are recorded he can only phone he can only phone people who are on a pre-approved list, list by the prison and those as i said they're they're monitored conversations and you know this is something that he has been having to deal with and live with live through for for many years and it's hard it's hard on a day-to-day basis but i think it also weighs weighs on him and on us that that we're robbed of years of our life you know years of our lives together um i met julian in 2011 when he was 39 um he's 52 now you know yeah and when i met him he was already under house arrest he had already published the state department cables um and you know i for the past four years and three months all my interactions with my husband have been in a big visiting hall for only an hour and a quarter at a time this is you know i was i was in my mid-30s when he was when he was arrested and now i'm 40. these kinds of things they do weigh on you um apart from the day-to-day struggle and of course for julian uh that's that's much more intense because he's the one that's having to endure it um, physically and mentally. Well, thank you, Stella. Um, I, I can't, I can't imagine um, that the sort of difficulty um, that Julian, yourself, and the rest of your family um, are going through. Um, but one last, very brief question: What should we do if I'm a concerned citizen? in the UK or in Europe or elsewhere? Is there anything that we can do? Is there anything that we should do um, to help? Yes, uh, I have a free Assange emergency toolkit. Um, Oops, I have a free Assange emergency toolkit, which um, I will pass on the the, the URL to you. Um, And that will be updated as, as time progresses. Um, there's going to be various different actions, but obviously, depending on on you know who you are or what what um, you know who, who you know or what your circumstances are, there are different things that can that people can do. Um, obviously, um, if in a position to do so, donate to his legal defense or to the campaign. Um, I'd encourage everyone who, who wants Julian free to actually physically show up to to the protests. It's it's very important, uh, and I think you also get something out of it personally, feeling the um, the support for Julian. Um, and it's important also for the cameras to see that Julian has a lot of support, including in this country. I mean, 
Julian has enormous support, I know, um, you know, among the crypto community um, in in Latin America, in Europe, and and um, also at high levels. I, I actually had a private audience with the Pope um, about 10 days ago. Um, so, you know, he has huge support, uh, but it's important that it's not just online. Um, and maybe the, the, the easiest thing, but perhaps the most important is to talk to, to friends, family, um, colleagues, um, to, to keep Julian as Julian's case alive and to not be afraid to, to express your outrage at this case. And it's not, you know, it shouldn't be controversial because everyone from amnesty to reported without borders to the Pope, um, want Julian free. So it shouldn't be controversial. And even if actually, even if you want to say con something controversial, whether it's about Julian or about anything else, you should say it, you know, let's not, let's not self-censor.